Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hey, everybody. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. We took a little bit of a field trip last week. We went to Copenhagen and had a, a terrific time. Copenhagen seemed to be the center of the ophthalmology universe last week. Uh, we had a convergence of several clinical meetings, including ESCRS and uh, EU retina and EU cornea. And uh, OIS, of course, had to be there. So I was uh, armed with my, my handy-dandy microphone. I stormed to the Bella Center in Copenhagen and uh, found some interesting stories to share with you. Uh, this is a, a very exhaustive project. Uh, kudos to uh, our producer, Mario Scamilla, for weaving all of this together. I hope you find this visit to uh, to the floor, the exhibition floor at ESCRS, EU Retina, and Ecornia enjoyable. And uh, we certainly enjoyed our time in, in Copenhagen. Uh, very grateful to see a lot of our OIS friends there. And, uh, and again, hope you enjoy uh, this this project uh, of passion that uh, we put together for the podcast. And also, I just want to remind you, we have our very own conference coming up, OIS at AAO. It is happening uh, less than a month away. Wow. It's uh, October 13th. It's in Chicago. Uh, if you haven't registered yet, please do go to OIS.net. Uh, we uh, had a blowout affair last year in Vegas. We're going to do it again in Chicago. So uh, we hope you'll be part of that. Again, to go to OIS.net to register for OIS at AAO in Chicago. And now uh, sit back and enjoy this visit to the uh, exhibition floor at, uh, at the Bella Center in Copenhagen last week. Now I'm walking up to the booth at uh, C215. It's the AccuFocus booth. And I'm going to uh, have a conversation with Al Waterhouse, see if I can uh, sit down with him, talk about the new $66 million financing uh, from K- led by KKR. And uh, AccuFocus also released uh, a new lens, announced it this week. Uh, the IC8 will be released in Europe, so we'll get the, uh, get the update on that as well. I'm here with Al Waterhouse, President and CEO of AccuFocus. Al, thanks for joining us. Thank you. You're welcome, Tom. So you made a lot of news lately. You've, you've rolled out IC8, and we'll hit upon that in a moment. But first, this, uh, this new financing is extraordinary, $66, $66 million, led by KKR. Have you done your due diligence on KKR? Are you sure they have the funding, you, the money behind them to really support AccuFocus? Yeah, we are thrilled to have KKR, and for several reasons. One, this is good news for ophthalmology uh, as an industry, to have the sophistication uh, of KKR enter our space again because they've been out of the space for a while. Uh, I think it's exciting for everyone. We're particularly thrilled that uh, as they've been looking to enter ophthalmology for some period of time that they chose us because mm-hmm. uh, I think it's it's a real vote of confidence with the small aperture technology. Uh, they're excited about IC8. They're excited about the inlay uh, business uh, and in general small aperture because we think it could be disruptive in, in, in the in our space, and that amount of money with uh, with the means of this company allows us to accelerate our growth that's happening in the U.S. It allows us to continue to do R&D work because we have other applications we think we would uh, that pertain to this technology, and of course launch IC8 uh, here in Europe, and that's what we're spending a lot of our time with 
here at the show is we're just now in a position where we're actually producing our first production lots as we're standing here. Uh, so coming out of this show, we're going to make a, a meaningful launch in Europe. Right. And we'll get into ICA in a moment, but were you looking for this level of financing before? And what is having this much money behind you? It must make your job so much easier not having to worry about that for a while. Yeah, what makes it easier? Uh, we were looking for that amount of money, uh, and the reason is anyone that's been familiar with it, uh, if your time horizons are short in raising money, you have your senior leadership spending a disproportionate amount of its time raising money. Uh, and this was all about raising enough money to be able to focus on truly working on the products, serving our customers, meaning both surgeons and our patients, and spending our t- time doing what we do best. And that's frankly not raising money. It's developing these products and producing these products. Well, I'd also say you're pretty good at raising money. <laughs> uh, so how does ICA fit into, into camera? Uh, what there, into the whole strategy. Yeah, it's obviously they're, they're, they're two totally different products serving a, a different population. Uh, the, the only thing that's in common is, is its method of action. I think the beauty of our technology uh, is that it's passive and it's simple, right? You have a pinhole technology. Uh, the only way it, 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 that it doesn't work is if you haven't done the procedure right because for it not to work any other way, you'd have to violate the laws of physics. So... That's what we really like about the technology. ICA will be interocular lens, uh, obviously, so it's fitting in the cataract space. Um, when you look at what's unique about it and what makes it a very unique lens, and you know, I've been part of teams that have brought out the, the products. You know, Nick and I, and Nick Tarantino and I worked at AMO for years together. We helped break out uh, t- the Technus products, uh, and now the, the Symphony product that's out now. What makes this product unique is how many different categories it crosses it, it can handle uh, a torque patient up to one and a half cylinder it uh, it's going to fit in the edof category uh, it's going to aid surgeons who have been uncomfortable uh, being in the multifocal space because they felt like well maybe we couldn't handle uh, or comfortable enough to hit the refractive target and we don't like all the bad symptoms that come from that uh, it's a very easy to use lens it's a very forgiving lens um, for the patients that are about to hit our marketplace, that are the post-LASIK, this is going to be the perfect lens again because it's it's very forgiving for missing refractive error, and it's hard to cal- calculate the refractive error for a post-LASIK patient. So we're really excited about IC8. Um, I think it's a real winner in the marketplace. Um, we're going to let the data speak for itself. You're going to see some of the papers presented here. They've already been presented. Uh, we're going to be working on doing more studies. That's the other thing that this money allows us to do is do more studies to really understand the benefits of this technology uh, as it relates to the cataract marketplace. So you've got a, a really solid pipeline. You've got capital behind you. What are the challenges of taking over a company like AccuFocus? Well, I mean, the, the challenge is with a small company, and we're blessed with a really senior team. That's one challenge I don't have. Uh, and credit goes to Jim Mazo, my predecessor. He brought in a lot of experienced folks. But anytime you're a small company, you know you typically have a single product. We have, uh, and we're lucky we have two products, but we have a single product in the cataract uh, market uh, place. The other challenge is uh, what's different about our product is it's a it's a single lens solution. Now the beauty about that is uh, when we're fixing presbyopia. Uh, 
you know, we're doing it with a single lens solution. We don't compromise distance vision. So it's not monovision, you know. So the good news is it's not monovision, but it's a single lens solution. Surgeons aren't typically used to putting in different lenses. So there's going to be an education component to this uh, challenge in the marketplace. But it's one that I think folks are getting more and more comfortable with because they're learning about it when they come to conferences like this. So one of the challenges is, customer and the other challenge with a small company is consumer awareness on the inlay side right we don't have the dollars and we won't have the dollars even with kkr to do direct to consumer advertising uh only the large strategic players can do that but aside from that i mean there's so many positives about being part of a small company we're very nimble we can move very quickly we make decisions quickly uh it's a great culture you know some of the players you know nick's been in the industry forever and so, you know, you have those pluses and minuses. But for those of us have, that have worked in both environments, there's an awful lot of positives about being part of a small company. Does the direct-to-consumer advertising by the larger players, does that kind of create a, a draft for smaller companies to kind of push into and get, and get pulled along by? I think it can. I, you know, it's, uh, it can. And, and there's opportunities to, to do some direct-to-consumer work, I think, on the inlay side. We're actually trialing. Uh, some direct-to-consumer stuff in some major markets uh, in a pretty small scale uh, just to see what kind of uptick we have. But I know in the past uh, when the AMOs of the world that have done just some uh, direct-to-consumer work uh, on the uh, uh, refractive side, uh, on the LASIK side, uh, it's been beneficial, I think, uh, to the overall market. And his final question, what does AccuFocus become where, where do you go from here with this you're gonna you've got this capital behind you you'll probably need, need more at some point but do you continue to turn out more lenses like these do you go into other directions what's the long-term plan i well i think the the immediate uh concern for us is making sure uh that we have a high quality growth on the inlay side uh and and that's that in and to itself will be a lot of work you know inlays because inlays have been around for 30 years there's some headwind there. There's, there's a perception that there's issues with inlays. And some of that goes back to the work we had to do. And all, all the trial and error was done here in Europe. And that's why you see us doing so much better in the United States. Uh, the, the issues with inlays, because, uh, and Nick will tell you, they go back 30 years, uh, the very first attempts. You know, we didn't have the manufacturing capability we have today. Our inlay, when you think about this, that inlay is six microns thick. That's about 70% of a red blood cell. And then we shape it, uh, we anneal it in the same shape as the cornea. Uh, And then we place it in the eye. It's like having nothing in the eye, almost, when you think about this width. That manufacturing capability, and and, and given all that, as small as it is, has has 8,400 microperforations in it. So we didn't have the laser capability to produce those microperforations. We certainly didn't have the technology to make anything that thin that reliable. Uh, and today we do. And so that's what's made the big difference. And then all of the lessons learned around the procedure, the depth that needed to be at, all the uh, pre, uh, uh, pre-operation preparation for the eye, all the things that go into having a successful surgery now, were learned here. And so we want to make sure we take care uh, of, of introducing it in the United States the way we sh- should have uh, elsewhere. And so that's going to take time. It takes effort. You know, when you're creating a marketplace, it's much different than 
me introducing an IOL into an existing marketplace. And that takes a lot of effort. So that's going to take up a lot of what we do is, is on the uh, inlay side. On the IOL side, it's going to be doing uh, additional studies to make sure um, uh, we're covering all the markets that we really need to. We will probably look at uh, expanding uh, our diopters because right now we're at 15 and a half to 27 and a half. We need to get closer to the fringes there, uh, go probably down to 12 and up to 30. So we'll spend some time there. We have a larger incision size than a lot of IOLs. Now, we're perfectly comfortable with that because, again, we can handle astigmatism. So anything we, m- we might induce, and it doesn't look like we do, but if we were to induce some, we can handle it. But we know the marketplace likes to be sub-3, so we're going to probably spend some dollars doing that. Uh, and so we're, we're going to stick, stick pretty close to our knitting early uh, because there's just a huge opportunity in just, just those two areas. And I, I know I said final question, but one more. You mentioned earlier on with KKR coming in, you get a sense that there's more dollars out there that are looking to come into the sector. Do you anticipate that? You're closer to this than I am talking to other CEOs and other investors. Do you anticipate seeing big private equity type players coming into ophthalmology like this? You know, I would think you would because, you know, it's a very favorable demographic. It's a very favorable uh, industry. Uh, I think there's things that, I, I mean, from my viewpoint, having been in under, other industries, what I really like about ophthalmology is the, the tightness that exists between the user groups and industry. Um, and, you know, credit to some of the folks like Jim Mazo that have been in, the, in this industry forever. They, they've really developed uh, tight relationships that help us bring products to market. And I think, uh, again, f- favorable demographics, particularly in the cataract space as the population ages and the unmet needs. There's still a lot of unmet needs. And you're seeing that. That's why MIGS has been so, so popular, right? For years, we had the same products uh, and, and glaucoma. And again, because of technological changes, micro the ability to go with micro devices is really aided in less evasive procedures. And we still have unmet needs in this industry. So I think anytime there's unmet needs, a big market like this, and the ability to collaborate between industry and, and, the, uh, and the physicians, I think you're going to see investment. Thanks for taking some time today. Thank you. Hi, we're going to take a quick break from this series of conversations to remind you to uh, go to ois.net. We've got our OIS at AAO coming up. Would very much love to see you there to keep uh, this ophthalmology conversation going. And, of course, we could not do it without our elite sponsors. Uh, That includes Abbott Medical Optics, Airy Pharmaceuticals, Alcon, Bayer, and Santa. So thank you for those uh, sponsors for stepping up and helping us make OIS at AAO happen. Now back to this uh, series of conversations from the floor of ESCRS and EU Retina in Copenhagen. Standing outside of Vidro's booth, I see new CEO Reza Zadna is holding a meeting with, uh, with his team. Uh, we're going to see if he can take a few minutes with us to talk about uh, his plans out of Vidro, why he joined, uh, what it's up with the, uh, the cross-linking technology, which of course got FDA approval early this year, but uh, the company uh, hasn't shipped the uh, medicine out, the riboflavin out that's associated with the system. Uh, but we'll get an update on that and uh, what he sees as potential for Vidro. He's obviously had a, a lot of great success in ophthalmology and uh, must see a, a great opportunity here at Avidro. Let's see if he has a few minutes to talk. So is it true you took this job just to get the free airfare to uh, ESCRS? 
<laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think so. Congratulations on the new post. Uh, what's your first stop? I and mean, you had a great meeting there. I see people seem really animated yes, and engaged. Yeah. So where, where, are we le- where are you leading folks? So I uh, was at Interest Partners. Sure. We led the la- last round of uh, financing. And during that time, I got familiar with the technology. I had called a lot of physicians. Um, we saw great potential in the technology the company had developed and being first approved product in the U.S. So those were all the uh, areas that got us excited. And then Pixel, uh, using the tech, because it's a platform technology that will allow uh, improvement in uh, in vision, uh, correcting refractive error, whether it's for low myopia or presbyopia. So it was very encouraging to see at lunchtime, it was a standing room uh, uh, session, a uh, lot of interest. So our focus uh, initially is definitely delivering KXL. We are going to uh, ship our first product in the next couple of weeks in the, in the U.S. So that is our focus, definitely in the U.S. and outside U.S. We, we maintain focus on that, but also continuing generating clinical data on the pixel um, and bringing this to correcting myopia I think that's what everybody's excited for a new technique that is non-invasive uh, I'm very excited about that as someone with onset of presbyopia uh, so what is uh, going to the, the, the shipment you're going to have on a couple of weeks what were the challenges in getting that out and, and what, what was there anything that had to be overcome? No challenges you, you know uh, so when I so the company is uh, transitioning from a, I would call it, development phase to a more commercial commercial stage, and that's where uh, we have made some changes. I'm bringing somebody like Raj. Um, I mean, he was one of the early adopters of the technology. He was a, so we are bringing. I mean, in a small company like us, we have one MD, we have three optometrists, so we are. We are bringing all of those in the in the company, but uh, from a manufacturing point of view, no, there wasn't any uh, any issues. We just have to make sure that uh, all the quality systems were in place. All the, so there no issues. We're we're just gonna ship uh, with working with our vendors, and but there wasn't any issue. It will be shipped. That's you know, I mean, and I understand as a startup, you don't, probably don't want to make that big batch of drugs until you have that no, FDA no, approval. No, no, absolutely. So, so so, all of that was was in place. You know, the company uh, had done a good job of putting all the systems in place. But what we are doing is uh, we are allowing the company to grow in the sense of, uh, because KXL is in place, but to develop Pixel, we are putting project teams, uh, plans, doing more clinical studies, putting more science. Uh, so, so all of that's what we are doing, putting more clinical studies so that we truly understand how the product can be used for all these areas we talked about, low myopia, presbyopia. So we are putting all those clinical plans in place. And what is the, the time frame for Pixel going through regulatory review? Do you have any sense of that yet? Uh, so th- those are the those are the uh, timelines we are putting together. I, I don't want to give any any. Uh, I mean, definitely, it's it's approved outside the U.S., but in the U.S., we are we are working on that. Uh, yeah. And just final question: You, you were with Visiogen, tra- you're chairman of Transcend, uh, Oria. Is this is this company uh, anything 
like any of those, I guess Araya would probably be the closest uh, comp to, to the type of company that you're now leading? Yes, so um, definitely I think this company has a huge potential. Um, if we execute well, I think this is about the execution. We, we are, I think it has the, it's the right market, right product, being first in the U.S., I think this will be bigger than VisioJet, bigger than Transcend. Is uh, I mean, just imagine low myopic patient, no cutting the eye. The market for this is just it's a huge, huge market. I mean, some some physicians, more than 40 percent of the patients are low myopes. You know, so it's a hu- very, very large market. But we have to execute correctly. <laughs> and just and just finally, how does it feel to be part of a, a team again in a company you've been investing for so long? So, um, you know, I was in operations for many, many years. The last four years I spent time with the venture, venture side. That was a very good experience for me because I could see the companies through the investor side. Um, you, you know, as you know, the company really is a combination of investors, employees, and the customer. I was an employee always, but being on the investment side, I see how investors look at it. Having somebody, Raj, who's a customer in the company, really, now we have all the three elements, helps us grow the company. But what I was uh, happy to come back is being back again with the physicians, being right to understand, because physicians are uh, people who know, who interact with the patient, they know what the problems are. That that is what I was looking for to be back interacting with physicians and working with a team to deliver a product and improve uh, vision and quality life of patients. So, being back and interacting with physicians is what something I I was very excited to come back. Well, I really appreciate you taking a few minutes. I know you're a busy man now. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again, Reza Zadno, for being such a good sport with my dumb first question. You handled it like a pro, which means just ignore the dumb first question and wait for the serious ones. Now I'm walking up to Alcon's booth. Uh, I can't see what number it is, unless I walk way over here. And I don't know why you care what number it is, but hell. It's number 30C307, and I'm looking at Alcon's LX3 uh, microscope device. And uh, they've got a yellow pepper under there and if you take a gander inside you get a really good look at what a yellow pepper looks like up close it's pretty cool it also begs the question is a pepper technically a fruit but we'll save that for another podcast hoping to speak with uh someone from alcon about their news this week so let's see if we can get someone's attention all right well i'm here with uh josh anderson global product director now releasing in charge of i guess the commercial release of ingenuity that's correct so, can you tell us a bit about what market you'll be? Uh, tell us a bit first about Ingenuity, and then we can get into what market you'll be going sure. into. Yeah, Ingenuity is very exciting, transformative technology. It's our new 3D visualization system. So, what it's going to do is it's going to replace the oculars on the traditional microscope and instead put a HDR Ingenuity camera on the face of the platform and allow customers really to see better, enhance their visualization. Really, it's aimed at improving patient outcomes. So we're in the wet lab here at, uh, at your booth in Alcon, and we can see the old microscopes, or the current microscopes, the way they're done, compared to Ingenuity. I mean, in the, in, to a layperson, the advantages look apparent, but uh, go over some of the, in detail, some of the advantages of Ingenuity. Well, some of the feedback we've heard uh, from the doctors over the last couple of years of us taking this around is that they can uh, perform 
retinal surgery and lower levels of light. So that's going to be advantageous for them, as well as um, being able to uh, uh, provide some color channels. So based on certain pathologies that they may be, may be dealing with, their opportunity to enhance some of that visualization specifically can be advantageous so they can actually see more, see better than they currently can right now. And the device includes, I see a piece of, uh, of technology from True Vision. We had them at one of our conferences. Uh, you've got a, an arrangement with them. What, is that, what are the details of that deal? Yeah, it's a business partnership that we uh, uh, went with True Vision on earlier this year in February. So we'll have an exclusive arrangement over the next three years. We're really excited about collaborating with them uh, for purposes of ingenuity. And finally, what uh, you're here at the floor of ESCRS in, in EU Retina. Um, you're releasing in Europe, in the U.S. Tell us a bit about your commercial release plans and what kind of feedback you're getting from folks here. Well, feedback has been really exciting thus far. Again, we've had the opportunity to take this uh, system around for the last uh, year, year and a half, and learned a lot along the way and continue to improve upon it. So we actually have a newer display that we're launching uh, again, in Europe as well as the United States, our software has been improved over previous versions as well. And our processing speed is, uh, is faster than it has been in the past. So the feedback thus far has been outstanding. A lot of excitement out there in the marketplace. Uh, so we just got FDA approval just a couple weeks ago and CE Mark earlier this, uh, this week. So uh, looking forward to bring those out to both of those markets in the United States and Europe. Uh, over the next couple weeks uh, as supply becomes available. And then later on this year, we'll look for other opportunities such as in Japan to launch as well. And do you have some other approvals pending? Do you see yourself going into other markets after that? Without a doubt, yeah. So this certainly will be a global launch. I think we'll, we'll certainly be prudent and make sure that we do the right things by our customers and make sure that we internally are ready. But we have every intention of making this a global launch in the future. I'm going to take another quick break here just to, uh, again, remind you to go to OIS.net to uh, check out the, uh, the agenda for OIS at AAO. It's uh, shaping up to be great. We've got a, a, a bounty of, uh, of great companies that have uh, applied to present. So uh, it's going to be a great year for, uh, for company presentations at OIS at AAO. And, of course, uh, none of this uh, happens without our sponsors. And I'd like to take a moment to uh, thanks our, thank our premier sponsors, uh, Allegan and Shire, for their support of OIS at AAO. It's uh, great to uh, work together with these great companies to, uh, to make sure that uh, ophthalmology innovation gets the attention it deserves. Now back to this conversation. I'm going to take a look at uh, Oculentis' booth. They've had lines going around the block all day, so they must be uh, serving up some exciting new technology. Hi. What are the flavors? Uh, mango, licorice, chocolate, and vanilla. Uh, chocolate, please. And a little bit of vanilla. Yes, ice cream. One of the better promo ploys of ESCRS. Let's talk to Oculentis. Yeah, actually, we are a manufacturer of the lentis uh, intraocular lenses. Most famous are Lentis Comfort and Lentis N Plus, uh, segmented lenses. And uh, yeah, we're mostly at every year at ESCRS. And here at the moment, because it's so warm in the exhibition halls, we have ice cream, ice cream and coffee. Very smart. Yeah, it's working. I mean, it's a long line. I mean, uh, mature surgeons are standing in line for 20 minutes to get one little bowl of ice cream, but yeah, it's nice. <laughs> I think you have the two hours working people. And then yeah, it's, 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 it's crazy. It's really crazy. But yeah, we're happy. Happy it's working. Happy they are forced to stay in line to see our slogan yep. everywhere. So it's great. Oculantis is happy so far. Well, thank you for the ice cream. No problem. <laughs> 
Enjoy. Thanks to Enrico Plasau, head of marketing at Oculentis, for uh, for taking a few minutes. Uh, he said that uh, Oculentis does not have lenses available in the U.S. at the FDA. Fortunately, is uh, too big a hurdle. But uh, he went over their line of of products uh, that are available in Europe and beyond. And uh, go to Oculentis.com and check out what they have. And uh, if you have an opportunity to get some ice cream next year, please do it. It's, it was delicious. One of the keynote addresses at EU Retina was given by Professor Richard. In his talk, he uh, he outlined the potential groundbreaking technologies or the groundbreaking potential of technologies like stem cell therapy and retinal implants. So we had a chance to speak with Khalid Ashak. He is the CEO of Pixium Vision. Pixium recently received CE Mark for its Iris 2 technology. And we talked to Khalid about what his plans are for the company following that approval. In quick editor's note, I did talk with Khalid for uh, over 40 minutes. This is going to be an edited conversation. Perhaps we'll play the entire interview in a future OIS podcast. Well, why don't you give us a, uh, an introduction to Iris, Iris 2. Iris 2, yes. right. Um, so uh, we are here uh, for the first time uh, after the you know, European commercial approval, uh, which came end of July for uh, Iris 2, which is a 150-electrode epiretinal uh, device uh, with additional feature that it's uh, designed to be explantable as well. As you see here, the goal is uh, very similar to epiretinal technique, is to place the electrodes to on the surface of the retina to stimulate the ganglion cells. Um, but the technique, uh, which has been developed by Pixium uh, with the iris technology, is uh, to very first step is to place the retinal tack, uh, which is different to what has been done so far. We attach and suture the extraocular housing, insert the electrode array with 150 electrodes on top of that retinal tack, and secure it in place with this uh, retainer ring, which is silicon. And in case we need to explant or in case new technologies come about, the goal, why, how this has been designed, is remove that silicon ring, just remove the, the implant, but leave the tack in place. And that technique has been patented. Uh, this has been going on for design since the IRIS project started by IMI in Germany. And uh, so we've taken from 49 electrode IRIS 1 now to 150 electrode IRIS 2 uh, with CMARC, while the clinical trial is still running to develop longer-term efficacy data uh, from, uh, for this device. So uh, we'll show you just a little bit quick demo. The other key difference here, we are not using a regular camera, video camera. And the goal here is to be able to capture what changes in a visual scene. So this is a bio-inspired image sensor which mimics the functioning of the human retina, in fact, where every pixel is independently looking at a scene and looking at the changes in a visual scene, whether the change is in... Uh, luminosity, whether changing brightness and contrast or movement. Those are the only things the sensor is interested in. And the technology actually comes from the technology which was originally developed in Zurich for the Large Hadron Collider project. Oh. So the researchers thought about how do we integrate that to really mimic the functioning of that. We think that, one, there are two advantages of that. One, battery consumption. You don't need to be capturing a lot of redundant information from our video cameras and then downsample in order to convert to electrical signals and then stimulate the retina. Uh, here we are taking directly the useful information, what the patient is interested in, in real time, and use that to generate the stimulation commands. And we think that might also be a language which the brain in general is interested in receiving. brain is not interested in redundancy because it relies on memory for that. So if nothing behind my head changes, your brain is getting nothing to conserve oxygen. Mm -hmm. But if I move my hand... Yes, that's new information. 
So brain is so that's why I, we think bridging the eye and the brain through this integration of one more electrodes to try to give higher resolution and more intelligent way to send the signals uh, to the retina to stimulate the ganglion cells. How important was the keynote address yesterday in which retinal implants were highlighted along with stem cell technology? Uh, it, does it help get physicians on board with this idea? Are they generally open to introducing this to their patients who, you're right, have no other options? What, what, are, what is the recept- how important was the keynote and what is the overall receptivity of, the, of physicians? Um, I would say overall there is, uh, from the uh, from a few years ago, with uh, the hype around retinal implants because people started seeing the very first results because the results with implant technology tend to be obviously more short-term versus gene therapy or stem cell research, which is going on. So um, the keynote lectures, uh, even at Arvo this year, there was not a lot of talk in May about retinal implants because people are looking at what else is possible. They're more looking at restorative, uh, earlier-stage interventions, whereas the retinal implants today are, are positioned as kind of last resort when nothing else has worked. Now you are blind, what do you do? Uh, so people often get confused. These are not the competing efforts today. Uh, but from a factual point of view today, there are only three retinal implant companies now. That's an approved technology, regulatory approval in Europe for three, one in the U.S., while all the other research in stem cells or gene therapy is still in early phases of phase one, phase two studies, and they still have to prove long-term efficacy, and we hope it will work for patients intervening earlier. Um, so the keynote, it was interesting to we just see the newspaper this morning, although uh, Professor Richard's lecture was almost half of his time was spent on retinal implants. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the actual write-up, it seems very clear, two-thirds of the write-up is about gene therapy and stem cells, and there's only a paragraph <laughs> about <laughs> retinal implant technology, which is interesting. Now, being human, and a lot of the journalists, <laughs> like yourself also, when they see the results, feel... Is this it? Is this all they can do? But they often forget where these patients are coming from. Uh, so, and we will continue to try to improve the, the benefit for these patients and quality of life while the, the rest of the science, the bio- biology, the biotech and the pharma industry looks for finding cures, which is the dream of everybody. One day we will find cure for blindness. But today we are just providing uh, uh, quality of life improvement in the lifetime of people who, who have nothing else. Until now, there was nothing available for them. Today, you have an approved treatment now available for them. Does it provide perfect vision for them? No, not yet. Right? So it, it'll be interesting to see how everybody is hoping for better results before physicians really recommend. I think the world is divided a little bit between there are people who are more in stem cells and gene therapy research, and they are, of course, a little bit biased towards, well, this is good, but not good enough. Let's focus. And NEI has its own uh, audacious goals to really try to regenerate the retina. Um, but there are other very pragmatic doctors who are saying, well, what do I do with my patients who are coming to me today? So, you know, we're glad that we're able to be of help with the technology and we're carefully selecting the patients who will benefit from their day-to-day and get more independence. Uh, and then there are people who are uncertain. And retinitis pigmentosa is a rare disease and there are different stages of the disease and we don't want to put people through taking risk of whatever little vision they have left. So there is a very strict criteria of when people can actually have a retinal implant. So uh, we'll see kind of two worlds, implants, very pragmatic, what can we offer our patients today and the and, and continue to improvements, and then the uh, gene therapy stem cells, which are more uh, down the stream, which will require earlier stage 
interventions uh, to either slow down or uh, recover the loss of uh, retinal cells. And I do want to get into the CE market. Was, uh, uh, you obtained it in, in July, correct, for Iris 2. Uh, what does that allow you to do? What are your next steps? Are you going to need more money? Or are you going to uh, have to hire, hire folks to, to, to sell? Yeah, so the, the C-Mark in, uh, in Europe um, allows the company, having demonstrated the safety primarily of the, the d- device, um, which is based also on the previous uh, version of the device, um, allows us now to start commercializing. It doesn't allow necessarily immediately reimbursement for the device everywhere because we still have to negotiate that with. And there are high-technology special reimbursements available uh, to start introducing the device with the criteria for long-term efficacy data buildup. So there are conditional for such chronic treatments uh, for a small company without the funding to actually do long-term studies. Um, I think that's going to be very helpful in France, in Germany, in UK um, to allow us to at least start commercializing while in parallel we continue to build efficacy data, uh, which will require us to have, of course, now a commercial team direct in Europe to start introducing in some uh, specialized centers for where the retinal surgery will be performed, but also the re-education capabilities because it requires quite a significant uh, effort from the patient and the low vision specialist to teach them how to interpret on this artificial vision. The surgery itself is two, two and a half hours, uh, but the patient has to still learn. So this is not a surgery for every center if they don't have a follow-up support for the patients after they've been implanted. So this will allow us to uh, start commercializing in Europe or anybody who follows the CE Mark uh, regulatory approval process uh, to be able to buy the device uh, if they can or through the National Health Services uh, to negotiate what and when will they reimburse. So that's CE Mark allows us to now start filing for uh, reimbursement approvals in uh, select countries and then start supporting the, the implant and the beginning of commercialization at centers of excellence who have been trained to already perform. So we have now we are across five European countries who have approved the device for participating in a clinical study for post-market long-term follow-up. Uh, UK, Spain with very uh, eminent centers uh, centers of excellence, uh, four centers in Germany from uh, Hamburg to, uh, to Bonn, Freiburg, and hopefully very soon Munich. Uh, Moorfields, one of the world's most known centers out of London, has started. Uh, the uh, Institute of Macular Ocular Ma- uh, uh, Specialization in Barcelona, IMO, will be participating also. So in parallel, while we will continue to study the device, we will also be able to offer the device at these centers for patients who are interested to participate, to, to have access commercially, to be able to pay for the device either through private pay or through um, other financing while the governments go through the reimbursement processes uh, for, uh, for this system. In addition to meeting with the companies on the exhibition floor, we did get to take in some sessions. On, uh, on Saturday, one of the main sessions was right up a rally called Novelties and Late-Breaking Developments in Retina Technology. Among the presenters were Mark Blumenkrantz, an old friend of OAS, of course, and uh, Praveen Dougal. He co-chaired uh, the event and uh, gave an update on OPT302 that was, uh, that was really much anticipated by the attendees. Also found a presentation by Dr. Claire Bailey of the UK. Interesting. She talked uh, about macular atrophy. We'll talk first to uh, Praveen Dougal and then uh, my quick interview with Dr. Bailey. I think, I think the main thing was essentially there are advances that are going on in the surgical field as well as in the medical field. And I think from a medical point of view, I think we've reached sort of the plateau of what anti-VEGFA monotherapy can do. So 
Um, I think it's quite clear that we're about to take the next step, which is probably going to be combination therapy. And from a surgical point of view, I think what, what became clear was that um, there are uh, surgical approaches to some what we call medical diseases, such as uh, retinitis pigmentosa and dry macular degeneration, but also that um, our next surgical revolution may be better visualization, maybe digital visualization and informatics to layer on different uh, multimodal images so that we, our surgeries can be much more effective and safer, uh, much like uh, GPS would be, for instance. So I think those are the main things from the session. And, and you presented the OPTE 302 data. Yes. Uh, that, that had some excitement. People were, were eager to wonder when that's coming out. Right. Well, it's in a Phase 1 study right now. Oh, the Phase 1 study is completed. So the Phase 2A and 2B study are, will be ongoing. Uh, and if the, if the data is as encouraging as the Phase 1 study suggests, then I think it will rapidly move on to the Phase 3. But at this point, we're still gathering data and going through the process. Well, in, in summary, um, what we did was we looked at how much um, atrophy uh, there was um, in people who were given anti-VEGF treatment. And it was one of two different drugs um, and different regimes, continuous injections versus discontinuous injections. And what we looked at was how much atrophy was developing within the lesion, within the CNV, over time. And we found um, that actually the amount of atrophy within the lesion did not relate to which drug was used between bevacizumab and ranibizumab, and it did not relate to the number of injections um, that was given either, um, which is sort of reassuring as people were worried that lots of injections might induce more atrophic change. Now, it's still, you know, the jury's out yet as to... Um, quite what effect the anti-VEGF treatment has. And we have another study called IVAN2, which is collecting data um, with a longer follow-up. So that will give some more information. But those are the sort of take-home messages. We also find that a particular type of CNV, predominantly classic CNV, seem to be associated with reduced progression of atrophic change. We don't know. It, it's, they're intriguing thoughts about why that might be. We don't know. And also that a tiny bit of subretinal fluid at the final visit seemed to be a relatively protective factor. But again, we don't know the reasons for that, but that was what was in the statistical analysis. Interesting. What, yeah. what, so what's the next step for you? The next step really is where we're very interested to look at the, um, the longer-term follow-up data from our IVAN2 study. So we will have you know, several years of follow-up on these patients and we want to see whether the atrophic change um, continues to progress over time. And we'll also look at the various factors about which drug they had, which regime they had in the first two years um, to, to see what effect that had. Now, after the two-year study patients went on to normal treatment regimes so they're not such a pure group but it will still be interesting to see what happens thanks for the time well while a lot of the activity happens inside these four walls or how many walls i don't know how many walls there are at the bella center a great deal of uh of the talking and the deal making of course goes on outside of here and uh we're going to talk with a ceo who is uh not taking part in esrs yet because he's not commercial just yet, but uh, certainly is, is finding valuable, uh, valuable opportunities to further his, uh, his company's goals. This is Tom Salemi. I'm here at ESCRS, where not all of the uh, activities happening in the, uh, the halls of the conference center. I'm here with David Bailey, CEO of Sensimed, and uh, Sensimed got approval, FDA approval, for its uh, contact lens sensor in March, but uh, Sensimed's pursuing uh, many different avenues before a commercial launch. David, let us know, what is uh, Sensimed up to since you got that FDA approval in March? 
Well, we were delighted to get that first of a kind of approval from the FDA. Um, we're the first ever contact lens sensing device that's measuring volumetric change, uh, which we've shown in many peer review articles um, is very relevant for the ass assisting in the diagnosis and treatment of glaucoma. Uh, going forward, we just closed a financing round uh, in order to enter into two significant clinical studies to validate and build a model around clinical utility with regards to uh, two elements. One will take place in Japan and will be focused on classifying NTG patients. That's the dominant element of glaucoma uh, in Japan. Uh, we partnered with a strategic player to help us do that and to uh, finance that clinical study. And we have very strong support from the Japanese Glaucoma Society uh, who are endorsing the study and um, we'll start moving that forward in November. What are the challenges in particular in diagnosing that type of glaucoma? Uh, in Japan, normal tension glaucoma, 8 out of 10 patients uh, are diagnosed that way. Uh, the normal gold standard, which is pressure, uh, is not elevated in those patients. So they can't just use that uh, biometric uh, to categorize um, those patients. So they're really looking for an additional clinical parameter to use. And we're hoping that the volumetric change of the eye over the 24-hour period, which is what we measure with the Triggervish device uh, can um, be a classifier. We had a period, couple of peer review articles published which seemed to demonstrate that. This clinical trial is about validating that. The other element of clinical utility that we're going to be focused on um, is uh, using the Triggerfish profile to categorize patients as either fast or slow progressors. We had an exciting first-of-a-kind study that was published in ophthalmology a little bit earlier this year uh, that demonstrated that element of clinical utility. So based on the Triggerfish recording, uh, that paper demonstrated that you were able to classify the patient as either a fast or a slow progressor. It's our aim to move forward with a similar study in the U.S. market that would lead to validation of that concept and also reimbursement for the Triggerfish device. So in that regard, we're actually looking for a strategic partner in the U.S. Uh, in order to partner with us at this early stage in order to do that study and demonstrate this element of clinical utility. So exciting times for Sensomed. Um, I... I um, get strong endorsement from the glaucoma professionals that they're looking for an additional diagnostic tool uh, to uh, supplement and complement their IOP measurement. Sensomed's not trying to replace IOP. We're trying to add in an additional significant biomarker in order to allow them to better diagnose the patients and ultimately uh, check on their treatments to make sure those are, those are effective. And you mentioned the contact lens uh, technology could be a sort of platform. What, are there are there opportunities for Sensimed down the road? You've got a lot on your plate right now with glaucoma, but what's the long-term vision? Yeah, we are the first company to have a, a contact lens with a sensor in it and a telemetry system um, that can record over an extended period. Uh, it's perfectly possible and feasible for us to put other sensors into the contact lens uh, in order to broaden the reach in other uh, diagnostic areas. The obvious choice would be a pressure sensor to measure 24-hour IOP directly. We've already done that and tested a device uh, in Asia, uh, learned an awful lot from that. Um, and we can do other, we can put other sensors in. So 
sure. It's a platform technology. Obviously, we're very focused on this clinical utility aspect. We're going to be uh, driving that forward uh, very strongly over the next 18 months to two years. Uh, but we have a nice technology that, that can, uh, we can broaden the applications. But that's for the future. And we hear so much about the potential for contacts. Obviously, Google's famous attempt at the glucose uh, sensing. Where that goes, no one knows. But uh, this is clearly an area where the, that's ripe for, for opportunity for startups and larger companies alike. Yeah, I mean, I, I joined SensorMed uh, because of my interest in contact lens sensing. I'd been involved in a company with a glucose sensor some time ago, and I think it's very clear that contact lens sensing is going to evolve uh, and be quite significant over time. Uh, so for SensorMed and for me to join and get a first of a kind of, kind of approval within that 18 months period is really exciting for the company. I think it's exciting for ophthalmology. And as we've just shown with this financing we did, it has the ability to pull in new players to the market. Uh, we've partnered in Japan with Seed, which is a, um, a significant disposable contact lens company. And I think that's good for ophthalmology that we're pulling in new companies who are not currently in the space. So I think the future is uh, going to be interesting for contact lens sensing. Well, I hope you have uh, fruitful meetings here at ESCRS. ESCRS. Thank you, David. Thank you so much. And finally, just prior to ESCRS, I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Klaus Stockman. He's the managing partner or a managing partner at Peppermint Venture Partners. And Peppermint, of course, has a few, uh, a few portfolio companies in ophthalmology. I talked with Klaus about those companies and also about what other opportunities Peppermint sees in the sector. Klaus, tell me a bit about Peppermint Ventures. How, how large is your fund and how big, does op- how big a role does ophthalmology play in that? Yeah. So we're managing two different funds. Uh, uh, the total volume is about 50 million euros. And we're investing uh, in medical devices and digital health. Companies based in Berlin, but we're investing Europe-wide. And one of our main focus is ophthalmology. We have two portfolio companies uh, in the fund. One of them is Implant Data, glaucoma monitoring with the first intraocular eye pressure sensor. And another company is Caterna Vision, which has developed the software as a medical device uh, for treating um, lazy eye. What is it about ophthalmology uh, that you find most appealing? We, we can go over the, the, the various positive elements about it, but what is it about uh, ophthalmology that Peppermint finds most appealing? I mean, very interesting is that there are still enough unmet medical need to find solutions for. Uh, that's also the reason why last year we sponsored a, 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 an eye accelerator in Berlin. Maybe you have heard about that, Eye Focus. Mm-hmm. It was sponsored by Bayer, by Zeiss, and by us. Uh, creating 80, 80 deals from all over the world to look at. So the innovation capacity in ophthalmology is something which is really intriguing for us. And I'm really impressed by the, the critical mass of meetings here in Copenhagen. Uh, you have ESCRS this weekend, a glaucoma uh, one tomorrow. Uh, there's a few others in, in various hotels. It's almost becoming like a J.P. Morgan for ophthalmology. Is, is, is it... Is it just happened that there's just this confluence of, of meetings at this time, or is is ophthalmology really gaining a lot of uh, traction? In it's already had traction in Europe, but is it is it gaining more traction in Europe? I think uh, the later the, I think it gets more traction. Mm-hmm. We have more and more meetings in Europe, and I think this is a great venue for meeting the corporates, meeting venture capitalists. Also, I have to say, I haven't seen too many uh, today, but maybe tomorrow and over the weekend you will see more. So it's a, base, a, a great platform to network. Mm-hmm. Is it? What I find interesting is the 
the, the regulatory matters obviously don't aren't stated as much of a hurdle here. There seems to be more of a we're getting this out in the market. That that's got to help sort of foster innovation and, and encourage people. Well, I mean, as you know, the regulatory environment is basically adopting, adopting most likely more to the U.S. than in another direction. If you have a class three medical device in ophthalmology, you also have to undergo extensive clinical testing and safety in Europe. Meanwhile, it's not so easy than it was, let's say, two or three years ago. But as it was stated, someone had stated, if you don't have a plan to get in the U.S., we're probably not going to invest in your company. Oh, I see that point. Yeah, of course. As a VC, we always, as a European VC, we start investing in Europe and building the company here in Europe to get a first CE mark, like Implantata is close to get CE mark for their intraocular device. But at the same time, they had discussion with the FDA, and we know exactly what we have to do to bring the product in the U.S. market. You, are you looking for deals uh, in ophthalmology, and are you looking more in, in Europe or the U.S.? Will you invest in either? Well, we would invest everywhere, uh, but to be honest, if possible, we want to like to bring the technology to, to Europe. So also Implant Data has a quite uh, large inroads into the U.S. With, with key opinion leaders, but the technology was developed in Germany uh, and the clinical trials were done in Germany, but I think we will soon start also clinical trials in the U.S. And going back to the accelerator for a moment, we're seeing great success uh, in the U.S. with Foresight. They seem to be creating a lot of success stories. Uh, how, how, what sort of uh, production are you seeing from the accelerator? Obviously, it's very early. I'm not looking for exits. But, uh, but do you have some stories you can sort of tout at this point? Well, I think you should also ask the corporates who also sponsor them. But from a VC perspective, to be honest, it was fun because there were investment opportunities and projects all over the place from Africa, from Nigeria, from South Africa, from China, from Hong Kong, from the U.S. All the people came to Berlin. To, to build their ideas. What, uh, what I was finding interesting is that um, there were a lot on blind people. So blindness, for whatever reason, was a, ma a major topic, which, as you probably can know, is a hard investment hypothesis to invest in, in a solution for blind people because of actually scalability of, of a product, right? Sure. So, so, but in essence, it was a great networking. And for Europe or Berlin, it was great to bring in international people, bring in the corporates, and then network. I think the, the, the inventors or the, the entrepreneurs, having been there, they, prof uh, they profit most about the network, the creation of network, and the input on their development. What last question, what has you most excited about ophthalmology over the next four or five years? We're seeing a lot of traction in MIGS, some, some areas really starting to get hot. Do you have a sense of, of what, um, what, what, what other success stories we might see in the next couple of years? I mean, I have, I have two things. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really a hard believer that on glaucoma you need a monitoring device to measure pressure. And that's the reason why we like implant data so much and we invested in because I think this will transform glaucoma therapy. That's the one thing. And I think other devices will come and that will be implemented in the next 10 years as a natural thing to have a sensor measuring the eye pressure. The other things where I'm really hot on is the whole digital part of ophthalmology. I think digital therapies or digital solutions for diseases in the eye will come. Uh, not only a company from ours like, like Caterna, but you have other companies which are using stimulation therapy for AMD, for other diseases, which you think today, how, how can that work? So we're really excited about the whole digital component when it comes down to ophthalmology. Well, thanks for joining us today. All right, everyone, thanks for joining us on this wild ride. This is the first time we've taken the podcast out on the road. I'm actually, if you're wondering how I'm doing this, I've got a little handheld microphone that's connected to a digital recorder. 
and uh, I look kind of like a dork, but uh, it works. And I uh, got some great comments from some great folks in ophthalmology. Thanks again for everyone who uh, who took the time away from uh, their busy, busy days. I know this is crunch time for folks in this industry to uh, to share their thoughts. Uh, we had some uh, interesting talks about financing, about commercial rollouts, about new research and new studies coming down the pike, and about promising uh, promising new technologies that aren't quite commercial yet. So much going on in ophthalmology. As we know that, and you'll find out more about it at our upcoming OIS at AAO. Yes, that's right. We've got our own conference to, to uh, tell you about. Go to uh, OIS.net to register for OIS at AAO. It's happening on October 13th in Chicago. And uh, it would be great to uh, to see you there. Last year's, if you remember, was, uh, was a blowout affair. And we're expecting uh, strong numbers this time as well. So please join us. Go to OIS.net, register for the October 13th OIS at AAO, and we will see you in Chicago.